You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? The idea of America inspired countless heroes to rise up in defense of expanding liberty to the oppressed. The founding generation set the tone for the United States to not simply remain a static nation restrained by procedure and tradition, but a growing and evolving one based on the ideas of opportunity, freedom, and prosperity. George Washington once noted in a letter to James Madison, that, quote, liberty, when it begins to take root, is a plant of rapid growth. The American experiment seems to verify this hypothesis. In less than 100 years, slavery went from being a simple fact of life in every American colony to being outright abolished. In the grand context of history, that is quite the remarkable turnaround time. Yet, in those decades in between, abolition was anything but certain. Many founding fathers would compare liberty to the growth of a plant or a tree. Washington was on point with his observation that liberty spreads rapidly when people get a taste of it. However, if his quote could be amended at all, it should include, quote, liberty when it begins to take root and frequently watered is a plant of rapid growth. To this end, it is the responsibility of every generation to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor in the name of liberty. Freedom is not a plant that will grow on its own, but under the diligent care of those who demand it. Perhaps at no time was this more important than during the final few years leading up to the Civil War. 
and perhaps nobody took it upon himself to water that plant more than Frederick Douglass. While many may know his name and face, few today truly appreciate the impact on the trajectory of the American experiment that Douglass had. Abraham Lincoln is often celebrated today for putting the final nail in the coffin of slavery, but it was Douglass who convinced him that no victory can truly be claimed if slavery is allowed to continue. While known as a powerful opponent to the institution of slavery, Frederick Douglass also took risky positions against the abolition camp, defending the Constitution and the Founding Fathers as proponents of liberty, not slavery. Even up until his final breath, he never stopped fighting for liberty and equality under the law. After winning the battle over slavery, he spent his last days advocating alongside the women's suffrage movement with Susan B. Anthony. By every definition of the term, Douglas was a true American original, representing each and every value that this country was founded on. For this season premiere, we are going to take the time to recognize him for what he truly was, the savior of the U.S. Constitution. Like with many slaves, the exact date of Frederick Douglass's birth is lost to history. Despite this, it is strongly believed that he was born sometime around 1818 in Talbot County, Maryland. No matter the exact date, the time frame of his birth coincided with some of the most crucial years in the history of slavery in America. In 1820, when Douglass would have been around two years old, Congress approved the Missouri Compromise. In doing so, they avoided civil war for their generation, but it almost certainly meant that Douglass's generation would have to confront the issue of slavery once and for all, although at that time, none of that really mattered to him. His only concern was growing up under this cruel fact of life, and those cruelties hit his life hard and quick. After his birth, his mother gave him the name Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. He didn't take the name Douglass until after he took his freedom. Like with many young slaves, while Frederick was still an infant, he was taken away from his mother. He lived with his grandmother until he was about six, but this too was stripped from him when he was sent to work at the Y House plantation. During his time at this plantation, he was treated as subhuman. His master, Aaron Anthony, forced enslaved children to eat out of troughs like farm animals. He was incredibly liberal with his whip when anyone would step out of line or didn't work to his liking. He rarely got a moment to settle in a single location, as he was then given to Lucreta Ald, Aaron Anthony's daughter. Then, her husband, Thomas Ald, sent him to work for his brother, Hugh, in Baltimore. It wasn't long before Frederick returned to Thomas, however, as he and Hugh had a dispute, and Thomas had his slaves returned to him. However short of a time Frederick spent at Brother Hugh's house, it had a lifelong impact. This was when the liberation of his mind truly began. It was here that Frederick taught himself how to read and write, using a Bible as his method of general education. He would let her credit Hugh's wife, Sophia, for teaching him the alphabet. In those days, it was not only discouraged to teach slaves to read and write, but it was also, in many cases, illegal. If a slave is kept ignorant of basic things like literacy, he or she cannot possibly acquire the knowledge, skills, or understanding required to take their own freedom. This proved to be an accurate assessment, as shortly after Frederick began learning the alphabet, he had already liberated his mind, and the liberation of his body would follow not far behind. But, for the time being, he did what he could, and passed along his knowledge to other slaves in secrecy. 
using the Bible to gift them with literacy. Although still a slave, he was proving himself to be a strong and capable moral leader in the fight for freedom. After Frederick returned to Thomas Auld, things were different. Thomas could tell that he wasn't the same ignorant slave who only knew how to take commands. He was knowledgeable, independent, and defiant. Frederick would continue to try to educate his fellow slaves and even lead them to worship. Thomas wouldn't have any of that, and would repeatedly break up his slave gatherings and dish out harsh punishment to Frederick. Still, his spirit remained intact. He came to understand that if he were to get Frederick to successfully submit, his spirit would have to break. He sent him to work for an especially cruel slave-breaker, Edward Covey. Covey was a farmer with a reputation of abusing his slaves both physically and emotionally. If anyone could get Frederick to subdue his yearning for liberty, it would be him. In January 1833, Frederick was leased out to work on Covey's farm. For six long months, he endured whippings, beatings, insults, and psychological torment that he likely hadn't experienced anywhere else. Eventually, his time at the farm reached a climax. One hot June day, Frederick suffered a heat stroke and fell to the ground. Covey was not pleased, assuming he was just being lazy. And like so many times before, he began issuing him a brutal beating. He would later admit that Covey had successfully broken his spirit up until this point. Quote, I was broken in body, soul, and spirit, he confessed. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intelligence languished. The disposition to read disparted. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in on me, and behold, a man transformed into a brute. Covey was kicking the exhausted Douglas, demanding that he get up and work. But as he tried to rise, he kicked him back down. This went so beyond so-called disciplined. He was enjoying this. He mustered enough courage to walk many miles to try to report Covey to his master, for his cruel treatment. Ald, however, did not care and sent him back. The following day, it was the same old song and dance. Covey attempted to tackle and beat him yet again. But this time, it was different. He later wrote that, quote, At this moment, from whence came the spirit I don't know, I resolved to fight. And, suiting my action to my resolution, I seized Covey by the throat. Covey was certainly taken by surprise, and Frederick had the upper hand. The two engaged in an epic struggle. Covey, clearly overwhelmed, sought the help of another white man in an attempt to subdue Frederick. This attempt failed miserably. As a man came to his aid, Frederick kicked him in the ribs and knocked him down, wallowing in pain. He then tried to solicit the help from another slave to stop Frederick, but the slave simply watched on, refusing to get involved. Covey must have imagined he planned to kill him. It isn't hard to imagine that this thought likely crossed his mind, but this is not what happened. The struggle ended about two hours later. He later wrote that he looked at Covey in the eye and made it clear to him that, quote, Come what might, he used me like a brute for six months, and that I was determined to be used so no longer. He would continue as a slave at the farm for another six months. But after this confrontation, Covey never again would so much as lay a finger on Frederick. If he freed his mind at Hugh Auld's house, it was here that he took back his freedom of spirit, demanding that he have his humanity respected. All that was left 
to be liberated was his physical body. His journey to liberty wasn't over just yet. His confrontation with Covey rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom, he said, and revived within me the sense of my manhood. It recalled the departed self-confidence and, and inspired me again with a determination to be free. He was determined to be free, but he still had to make it so. In January the following year, Frederick returned to Ald and was moved around a few more times before finally landing back at Hugh Ald's house in Baltimore. In this time, he planned several escapes, but none actually amounted to anything. He was often caught, although his altercation with Covey reminded people not to lash out too harshly. While in Baltimore, he experienced a small taste of freedom. He was permitted to travel around town by himself and even earned wages, though all the wages were to be submitted to Ald. Still, it went a long way to teach him what was possible with a free life. As he experienced a small amount of liberty to travel the streets of Baltimore unsupervised, he became engaged in the black community there. He was popular among them, specifically to a young freeborn black lady named Anna Murray. She took a fancy to Frederick, and the feeling was mutual. As it turned out, this flirtationship would soon grow into a loving marriage. First, however, he would have to take his own freedom before taking her hand. One day, Frederick decided to attend church service outside of Baltimore on a Sunday evening. This was not allowed, but perhaps would have been less of a big deal if he hadn't been late paying Ald his weekly fee. As one might expect, Ald became very upset after he returned the next Monday and threatened him. Frederick, already looking for a way out, decided that he would not be putting up with bondage any further. He had to be smart about it, however. He had been caught trying to escape to freedom before and getting caught again likely wouldn't fare too well for him. In September 1838, he disguised himself as a sailor, traveled from Baltimore to Wilmington, Delaware, then to Philadelphia by steamboat, then made it to New York City by train. This passage to New York was only made possible due to the help of Anne Murray, who, according to legend, sold her bed to help finance Frederick's escape. She helped him to secure the documents necessary to guarantee Frederick's safe passage as a sailor. In those days, black sailors experienced certain protections under the law with proper paperwork. As he arrived in New York, however, he was not yet in the clear. It was a profitable side enterprise in the city at the time for any person, black or white, to give crucial information about a runaway slave to the authorities. If he let his guard down now, his escape to freedom would be all for nothing. To avoid getting arrested, he needed to lay low. By chance, he ran into David Ruggles, the black abolitionist from New York who also was a conductor with the Underground Railroad. Ruggles helped over 600 slaves find passage to freedom in his safe house. And on this fateful September day in 1838, the man who would become Frederick Douglass was one of them. As he laid low with the Ruggles for a few days, Anne Murray finally arrived to meet Frederick. While Anne was born a free woman, she still had to be careful. After embracing Frederick, who had changed his last name from Bailey to Johnson for his own protection, the two were finally wedded by the Reverend J.W.C. Penninghouse. On September 1st, 1838, Frederick Bailey, still about six months from changing his name to Douglas, was still a slave with the dream of a free future. On September 3rd, he took action on that dream and finally escaped his bondage. By the end of September, he was a free man in a free land with a new and loving wife who helped him take his liberty. 
But even with his freedom and his new wife by his side, Frederick needed to ensure his own security. That meant moving further north. At the recommendation of David Ruggles, Frederick and Anne moved to New Bedford, Massachusetts. Ruggles not only wanted the two to find a free life, but a prosperous one as well. He knew that because Frederick had skill and experience in the shipping industry, New Bedford's shipping economy would allow him to find gainful employment. Upon arriving in Massachusetts, Frederick and Anne met and temporarily stayed with Nathan and Mary Johnson, a freeborn black couple. Frederick and Anne already changed their surname to Johnson, but because it was such a common surname in the area, Frederick decided to change it again. After some discussion with Nathan about it, he suggested to Frederick that he take up the name Douglas, after the Scottish poet Sir Walter Scott's Lady of the Lake. He agreed, and Frederick finally landed on the name that the world over would soon know him by. It wasn't long after he settled on his name that Frederick Douglas made his first free dollar. Now, in New Bedford, he was becoming a robust, active, and industrious member of his local community. In the few years that Douglas escaped from slavery, his life's trajectory altered dramatically. Something that never changed for Douglas, however, was his love for reading. Despite receiving no formal education of any kind, other than being taught the alphabet while still a slave, he was perhaps the most well-educated black man that anyone at that time had the fortune of knowing in New Bedford. Not only did he constantly consume information, but he could also communicate that information extraordinarily well. Nobody knew it yet, including himself, but his unparalleled ability to tell stories with both impeccable logic and powerful emotion would go on to alter the course of American history. One day, while in New Bedford, he stumbled across a newspaper by the famed abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, The Liberator. After reading its contents for the first time, he became impassioned that the abolitionist movement was so alive and well in the North. It motivated Douglas to attend many local abolitionist events, including his first political convention in Nantucket, Massachusetts. At the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society convention in the summer of 1841, he was invited to speak to the General Assembly, to his surprise. A man named William Coffin, who had heard Douglas speak before in New Bedford, knew just what he was capable of, and that he would captivate his audience. To say that Douglas accomplished this is an understatement. Despite not preparing for a speech, he moved the audience with the story of his journey from slavery to freedom. For so many people in attendance, this was their first experience hearing about the horrors of slavery in the South by someone who lived it. Douglas did not hold back. And once he was finished speaking, the audience was more determined than ever to rid the nation of this wretched institution once and for all. He delivered such a powerful speech that the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society immediately asked him to join as an agent of their organization, serving as a stump speaker at their events to tell his story. He agreed. While he wasn't the only former slave to recount his experience with the Anti-Slavery Society, Few others commanded the same authority as he did. Because he was so self-educated and possessed such a strong understanding of the why behind abolition, he was a titan for the movement. He soon became an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society and started to run in the same circles as the man who brought him into the movement in the first place, William Lloyd Garrison. In fact, it was Garrison himself who offered Douglas the position of agent for the organization to speak. 
He was in the audience when Douglas spoke about his experience as a slave. Douglas recounted how cruel his master was towards him and to his mother. He moved the room and garrison to passion and raw emotion. Douglas confessed that he was somewhat petrified to speak in front of the group so last second, but this fear did not seem to shine through, only his resolve. His speech was so powerful that Garrison immediately knew that he had found the advocate he was looking for. This must have delighted Douglas to no end, being such an admirer of Garrison himself. He truly loved the content of the Liberator. It made him feel as if he were not alone in the crusade against slavery. It gave Douglas a sense of community that he desperately yearned for. As we shall soon see, the two titans for abolition would soon grow distant in terms of ideology and approach, but they always shared the same final goal, that slavery was an immoral evil that must be purged from the earth. He began traveling with Garrison for what was called the Hundred Conventions Project of the American Anti-Slavery Society. This was a tour where the two men and local abolition leaders would travel across the free country and beat the drums of abolition to the public. Frederick Douglass served as one of the primary attractions, bringing people out far and wide who wanted to hear a story from his own lips. Of course, this attracted opposition as well, and pro-slavery protesters would often be found at these events. On one occasion in Indiana, an altercation turned violent, and a pro-slavery protester broke his hand, an injury that he never fully recovered from. But a broken hand did not soften his resolve. In 1845, he decided to leave no room for interpretation over his experience under slavery. He wrote his first autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by himself and detail the cruel life that he lived under the bondage of the Alds. This was a big deal for several reasons. It was a crucial moment that helped push the country away from the institution of slavery. The white consensus for many pro-slavery forces included the idea that blacks were subhuman, incapable of the same level of intelligence as whites. Now, here is a black man who has escaped slavery, who has not only been on a powerful speaking tour, but has written his own book. This flew contrary to that popular notion. Personally, for Douglas, however, it demonstrated his own bravery. While he had been experiencing freedom for several years now, there was still tremendous risk. He was technically a runaway slave, not a freed man, in the eyes of the law. Gaining that much attention put a target on his back, and he ran the risk of a bounty hunter catching him and returning him to the old family, back to slavery. He knew and understood this risk, but spoke out anyway. His former master wasn't too keen on being nationally humiliated by Douglas. He had bounty hunters on the search for him. To avoid the threat of capture, and due to his growing popularity, he traveled to Ireland and Great Britain for a European segment of their tour. His book performed exceptionally well in Europe, and he became somewhat of an international celebrity. For two years, he drew massive crowds as he gave lectures on his experiences under slavery. It also allowed him to truly flesh out his own philosophy. The inhabitants of the British Isles ate it up. In one speech, in England in particular, Douglas made a powerful assessment of any nation that continues this heinous institution. Quote, What is to be thought of a nation boasting of its liberty, boasting of its humanity, boasting of its Christianity, boasting of its love of justice and purity, and yet having within its own borders three million people denied by law the right of marriage. Douglas belted, I need not lift up the veil by giving you any experiences of my own. Everyone that can put two ideas together must see the most fearful results from such a state of things. 
While in England, he gained such a following that a group of supporters decided to raise the funds necessary to purchase Douglas from the Olds and give him his freedom. When Frederick Douglass returned to America in the spring of 1847, for the first time in his life, he stepped on U.S. soil as a truly free man. Now, with additional funds that he raised in Europe, he decided to step out of Garrison's shadow and start his own newspaper in Rochester, New York. He called it the North Star. Having secured his total freedom now, he was not going to hold back on his former oppressors. And perhaps the most emotional editorial of his life, he wrote a brutal letter directly to Thomas Auld, now as a free man. Quote, I intend to make use of you as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, he wrote in the North Star. Douglas wanted to make Auld an example of the cruelty of slavery. Quote, I am myself. You are yourself. We are two distinct persons, equal persons. What you are, I am. You are a man, and so am I. God created both and made us separate beings. I am not by nature bound to you, nor you me. Nature does not make your existence depend upon me, or mine depend upon yours. I cannot walk upon your legs, nor can you walk upon mine. I cannot breathe for you, nor you me. I must breathe for myself, and you yourself. We are distinct persons, and are each equally provided with facilities necessary to our individual existence. I am leaving you. I took nothing but what already belonged to me, and in no way lessened your means for obtaining an honest living. Your facilities remain yours, and mine became useful to their rightful owner. Yet, as he closed, he ended on a surprising note. He made a point to highlight that he harbored no hatred toward the man who caused him so much pain and suffering. Quote, I entertain no malice towards you personally, Douglas confessed to Ald. There is no roof under which you would be safer than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort which I would not readily grant. In conclusion, he made it clear that, quote, I am your fellow man, but not your slave. Frederick Douglass only continued to rise rapidly from there. There wasn't much that took him by surprise, but in 1857, something happened that he likely never saw coming. After a lecture in Philadelphia, a young lady approached him and invited him to visit her home. Her name was Amanda Ald Sears, the daughter of Thomas Ald, Douglass's former master. Douglass was about eight years her elder but there was enough overlap there that they experienced a childhood together in the old house, granted two very different childhoods. Now that Amanda was an adult, she was able to form her own views on the issue, and she had separated from her father and the rest of the old family on the issue of slavery. To her, like Douglas, she viewed it as morally wrong. This brought tensions between her and her family members, but it developed a wonderful friendship between her and Douglas. As they reconnected, the two obviously were overcome with emotion, and he asked about the state of his family, who were still slaves under Ald. This was only a few years before the Civil War broke out. While the next few decades were incredibly eventful and turbulent for Douglas, he and Amanda would keep in touch, and they remained dear friends. After the end of the Civil War, and with it the end of slavery, Douglas still had much unfinished business to attend to. Many injustices still placed American society against black people. He was a fierce advocate for black Americans in bondage, and although they had now been freed, 
he was still in no state of mind to quit. Yet perhaps the most surprising area Douglas needed closure on involved his old master, Thomas Auld. Although he wrote a brutal and very public letter to him many decades ago, Douglas still had much to say, and much he wished to know. In 1877, almost 40 years after Douglas escaped from him, the two men once again met face to face. This time, the circumstances could not be more different. Not only did he get his freedom from Auld, but all slaves were lifted out of their bondage. Auld was also no longer a cruel slave driver that Douglas knew him to be, but an old man on his deathbed, reminiscing about his life and the mistakes that he had made. As Douglas approached the old man by his bedside, the two could hardly control their emotions. Tears swelled in Douglas, perhaps from the painful memories, maybe from the relief that they stood now as equals. No matter what it was, he held no room for hate in his heart. This was the perfect chance to lash out at Auld and give him a piece of his mind. He certainly had the right to. But Douglas could only respond with the relief that freedom provided him. Likewise, Auld could not keep up with his cruel ways any longer, and he confessed that, quote, If I had been in your shoes, I would have done as you did. Upon hearing this, Douglas also confessed that, quote, I did not flee from you. Rather, I ran away from slavery. As they continued to reconnect, Douglas kept the promise that he made in his public letter a few decades earlier, assuring him that, quote, I am your fellow man, but not your slave. They discussed their mutual past, Douglas asked him questions about his early childhood, and they discussed the approach of death, which was getting close for the both of them. As they parted ways, they harbored no ill will towards each other, and Frederick Douglas was able to finally find closure toward the man who did more than anyone else to put pain in his life. All died three years later, on February 12, 1880. Frederick Douglass's journey out of slavery is absolutely remarkable. If anyone fulfilled the true vision for what this country was founded on, it would be him. Yet perhaps his most important accomplishment is one of his most overlooked. Not only did Douglass fulfill the vision for what America should look like, but perhaps he can also be single-handedly credited for keeping that vision part of America's identity. Without Frederick Douglass, the Civil War may have ended without a priority on abolition. Douglass rediscovered the original intent of the Founding Fathers, and with it, realized that America was an idea worth fighting for. Perhaps most remarkable is that much of our discussion about the Constitution today echoes much of the debate surrounding the Constitution in Douglass's day. He, too, was thrust into the center of the debate over whether the Constitution was a racist document that endorsed slavery or not. At first, 
he believed this to be true. But because of his ability to rigorously self-educate, he discovered a constitution that did, in fact, secure the blessings of liberty, if only someone would fight for it. When Douglas agreed to join William Lloyd Garrison as an agent for the Massachusetts and American Anti-Slavery Societies, he was not merely advancing the cause of abolition, but a very specific political ideology. Garrison, and other abolitionists like him, were very vocal proponents of peace, cultural change, and most specifically, anti-constitutionalism. The garrison wing of the abolitionists was staunchly against the Constitution, believing that it provided and maintained the system of slavery that had plagued the United States since its conception. In fact, Garrison once famously set a copy of the Constitution on fire during a July 4th gathering, stating, quote, The Constitution of the United States is the source and parent of all other atrocities, a covenant with death, and an agreement with hell. From his perspective, and others like him, the Founding Fathers composed an unholy compact that provided the framework for slavery to continue to exist. Radical abolitionists like Garrison advocated avoiding political activism and involvement so that they wouldn't taint themselves with the filth of such a system that would establish slavery in the United States. They wanted to change the culture and spoke directly to the people through rallies and newspapers. To an extent, there was some validity to this claim, at least enough to gain a sizable following in the North. The Constitution was indeed a compromise, and one that failed to prohibit the institution of slavery from the new nation. In order to ensure that the nation would survive past infancy, many of the most prominent founders who were anti-slavery had to punt the issue of slavery to the next generation if it hoped to be addressed in any meaningful way at all. Delegates from South Carolina and Georgia in particular, much like with the Declaration of Independence, had no intention of ending slavery when their entire economy was based on it. That slavery existed in the early 1800s due to the compromises of the Founding Fathers wasn't and isn't a question. However, Garrison and the radical abolitionists like him took it a step further. To him, the Constitution not only permitted slavery, but it also endorsed it. The, quote, pro-slavery war-sanctioning Constitution of the United States, as he called it, was not just a byproduct of a prior barbaric era, but was itself the root of an evil system. When Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison first met, Douglass bought this worldview hook, line, and sinker. What truly drew him to Garrison's abolitionist movement was the absolutism of the morality of slavery. Frederick Douglass, growing up as a slave and continuing to live as one until he was an adult, obviously had no formal education at all, let alone on history or constitutional law. But he was a brilliant mind who had a wicked sense of right and wrong. Slavery was not only wrong because it was old-fashioned or because it sometimes got out of hand, Slavery was wrong because it violated the sacred right of bodily autonomy and self-ownership of every person. No human being had the right to another man's labor without voluntary interaction. It was because of the violation of these rights that slave owners were incentivized to become especially brutal at times, turning into what George Mason described as petty tyrants. It brought out the worst in people. That even if a slave owner resisted the temptation of despotism and treated their slaves humanely, and this is key, they still had no more right to their slaves than the brutal master does. 
This absolute denunciation of slavery is what Douglas was particularly fond of. Naturally, if Garrison was so morally correct, it didn't take much for Douglas to conclude that he was also legally and historically correct. Thus, like with Garrison, Douglas grew bitter towards the Constitution and towards any system that enabled such an evil as slavery to exist. The Garrisonian line of thinking, as it was known, even advocated for secession of the North so that they would not have to share the government with slave owners. No union with slave owners became the motto of the Liberator, even. Garrison served as something of a mentor to Douglas in the new world of freedom that he found himself in. However, over time... Garrison's extremism began to push those like Douglas away from him. For instance, the Garrisonian point of view that abolitionists should not participate in a system of government that supports slavery sounds very idealistic, but practically, doing so was not going to make Douglas's brethren in bondage any more free. These hesitations in Douglas's mind were truly challenged after he first returned from his European book and speaking tour. Upon arrival, he officially had his freedom due to the patronage of his English supporters. Now he set off to break from Garrison and start his own paper in New York, the North Star. Douglas believed that a black-run newspaper was crucial in the cultural fight for abolition. However, he did not want to compete directly with his mentor and friend, so he started it in Rochester, placing him in an entirely separate market from the Liberator. What neither Douglas nor Garrison fully understood, however, was how impactful this move would be on Douglas's worldview. Now, no longer under the wing of his mentor, he became more freely intellectually curious about the arguments in favor of the Constitution, sympathetic even. This was amplified whenever he came across the work of Linsander Spooner, a fellow radical abolitionist who made the moral case against slavery, but also a legal one. In 1845, the same year Douglas released his own autobiography, Spooner released The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. In it, Spooner made the argument that both pro- and anti-slavery advocates were wrong about their interpretation of the Constitution. That by affirming the notion that the Constitution sanctioned and endorsed slavery, the pro-slavery forces had a default advantage that wasn't even the correct interpretation. He laid out the facts, like the fact that the word slavery did not appear in the Constitution once. For a supposedly pro-slavery document, you think the institution would be mentioned at least that many times. This was no mere accident, either. Multiple occasions in the Constitution that technically dealt with the issue of slavery purposely went out of its way to avoid using that term. For instance, take the Three-Fifths Compromise. In dealing with congressional representation, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 of the Constitution states that, quote, representatives and direct taxes shall be appropriated among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. The common interpretation made by both pro- and anti-slavery forces of the day was essentially that this was the definitive clause that endorsed slavery and reduced black people to be merely worth 
three-fifths of one person. Yet there is no mention of slaves in this clause. To be sure, this was certainly what the debate was over at the time it was included in the Constitution. James Madison pointed out that, quote, these states were divided into different interests, not by their size, but principally from their having or not having slaves. Slavery was the definitive issue during the convention that drove the outcome of the Constitution. Yet neither is slavery mentioned, nor does it define a black person as being three-fifths of one person. As Spooner points out, this is no mere accident. For the founders to bend over backwards to avoid using the term slavery, or slaves, at all, when everyone knew this is what they were referring to, is highly intentional. What was also intentional was the manner to which they referred to all other persons. If they were talking about slaves, then that meant one would have to affirm their personhood. Additionally, the use of the term person is sprinkled throughout other places in the Constitution, but in a way that affirms the liberty of the individual. The Fifth Amendment states that no person shall be deprived life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This use of the term person, in the eyes of men like Spooner, set the legal framework to abolish slavery through the courts. This case was a powerful one, and completely shook the worldview of men like Frederick Douglass, who for so long believed the Constitution had endorsed such a heinous institution. Perhaps what made Spooner's argument even more powerful was the fact that he was no fan of the Constitution himself. He did not believe it held the proper authority to serve as the governing document for free people in the United States. Nonetheless, Spooner looked at the facts presented to him. While he could not endorse the Constitution himself, he knew that the notion that the Constitution somehow permitted or endorsed slavery was utterly preposterous. He made the powerful case that the Constitution, quote, does not declare that we, the white people, or we, the free people, or we, a part of the people, but that we, the people, that is, we, the whole people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution. This argument was appealing to Douglas in a number of ways. It gave him confidence that one day the legal argument against slavery might become strong enough to overturn the entire institution. That gave him tremendous hope. Indeed, there was good reason for that hope. In fact, this was already precedent. Massachusetts had in fact used similar constitutional arguments with their own state constitution to internally abolish slavery. That's a story that we'll get to later in this season. What was more powerful than that, however, was Douglas's realization that America, despite all the issues that plagued it, like slavery, was a nation born in the idea of liberty. He began to understand that the Founding Fathers may have been flawed men, but that, quote, the intentions of the framers of the Constitution were good, not bad. They didn't want slavery to continue, at least not the ones that most people think about when mentioning the Founding Fathers. That meant that America was not just a nation that Douglas wanted to help improve, but one with a promise to fulfill. And once he understood that promise, he was determined to fulfill it. This led to Douglas making difficult, but in his mind necessary, choices, much to the dismay of Garrison. He no longer advocated for Garrisonianism. He did not want disunion. He did not want to abandon the Constitution that he now adored with his new understanding. He did not want to sit on the sidelines of the political process, and he was never afraid of a little fight. He acknowledged America's mistakes, but now affirmed that this ran contrary to the Constitution, not parallel to it, as Garrison thought. With his new understanding, Douglas revealed that it was time to break with Garrison's liberator. He said that he felt, quote, honor-bound to announce at once that the North Star 
would no longer publish Garrisonian worldviews that the Constitution was pro-slavery. More than that, he definitively claimed that the Constitution should be wielded on behalf of emancipation. This was huge. The one-time slave-turned-abolition stump speaker was breaking with perhaps the loudest anti-slavery voice of his day over the Constitution. This gave significant validity to the notion that the Constitution was a pro-liberty document. These were the circumstances that led to Douglas giving perhaps his most famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Less than a decade before the Civil War, in 1852, Douglas spoke in Rochester, New York, to the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. He opened up declaring his optimism for America due to its young age. That July 4th was the nation's 76th birthday. This provoked Douglas to comment that, quote, There is hope in that thought, and hope is much needed under the dark clouds which lower above the horizon. The eye of the reformer is met with angry flashes, portending disastrous times. But his heart may well beat lighter at the thought that America is young, and that she is still in the impressible stage of her existence. He then went on to admit that despite the flaws of the founders, he, quote, cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes. And for all the good that they did, and the principles that they contended for, I will unite with you, to honor their memory. From here, however, Douglas paints a grim reality of the current state that America found itself in. Quote, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are, to him, mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Yet despite this cruel state America found itself in, Douglas once again revealed his optimism for America thanks to the blessings of liberty ensured in the Constitution. He said, quote, Fellow citizens, there is no matter in respect to which the people of the North have allowed themselves to be so ruinously imposed upon as that of the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In that instrument, I hold there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction of the hateful thing, but interpreted as it ought to be interpreted. The Constitution is a glorious liberty document. As he closed, Douglas stated that, quote, I therefore leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. Douglas was still incredibly defiant over the state of American slavery, but that defiance was now offset with a newfound spirit of hopefulness. A spirit that, despite all odds, only continued to grow as the years went on. 
1857, as the Dred Scott decision came down affirming the constitutionality of slavery, Douglas was no doubt disappointed. But his faith in the Constitution, in fact, strengthened. He did not believe that this proved the Constitution to be a pro-slavery document, but rather that pro-slavery justices were altering the original intent of the document. This managed to fuel his next great speech made in Glasgow, Scotland in 1860. The Constitution of the United States. Is it pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Believe it or not, by then he was even more assured of his position over the Constitution than he was during his 4th of July speech in Rochester. Speaking before the Scottish Anti-Slavery Society, he boldly declared that, quote, When I escaped from slavery, I was introduced to the Garrisonians. I adopted very many of their opinions and defended them just as long as I deemed them true. I was young, had read but little, and naturally took some things on trust. Subsequent experience and readings have led me to examine for myself. This had brought me to other conclusions. My position now is one of reform, not revolution. I would act for the abolition of slavery through the government, not over its ruins. He only grew more defiant from there. Quote, if slaveholders had ruled the American government for the last 50 years, let the anti-slavery men rule the nation for the next 50 years. If the South had made the Constitution bend to the purposes of slavery, let the North now make that instrument bend to the cause of freedom and justice. If 350,000 slaveholders have, by devoting their energies to that single end, been able to make slavery the vital and animating spirits of the American Confederacy for the last 72 years, now let the freemen of the North, who have the power in their own hands, and who can make the American government just what they think fit, resolve to blot out forever the foul and haggard crime which is the blight and the mildew, the curse and the disgrace of the whole United States. Douglas's words here rang almost prophetically. As slightly over a year later, the Civil War broke out between the North and the South. Despite what some seem to believe today, the Civil War was indeed fought over slavery, at least for the Southern states. In the North, President Abraham Lincoln was concerned with one thing and one thing only, preserving the Union. In August 1862, well over a year since the carnage of war began, Lincoln wrote to a newspaper editor that, quote, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save the Union by freeing all slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some slaves and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. Yet despite this position, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, ensuring that slaves would become free in the South so long as the Union made advancement. Douglas, who had been skeptical of the president up to this point for his apparent lack of concern for the issue of slavery, rejoiced. He declared men of color to arms. Yet, Lincoln did this for more tactical reasons than principle. He had hoped that, as he mentioned in his aforementioned letter, 
that freeing slaves might lead them to join the cause of the Union and to help preserve it. He wasn't the first to try this tactic. During the American Revolution, both the British and the Americans tried to elicit the help of black slaves with the alluring promise of freedom. Although he supported the move, Douglas, however, wanted to ensure that the president would remain firm on emancipation upon victory. The worst thing that could happen would be for the North to win after so much bloodshed, only for the South to be allowed to maintain slavery as a condition for peace. So, in August 1863, Douglas walked right up to the White House and asked to speak with the president. Despite being in a state of war, Lincoln maintained that walk-in visitors continue to be allowed in. During this first meeting, Lincoln was eager to meet Douglas finally, having heard and read so much about the radical. Douglas sought his audience to improve the troop condition of black soldiers. Lincoln tried to explain to Douglas the difficult position that he was in, but understood his perspective. After the meeting, both men walked away with a heightened degree of respect for the other. Douglas, Lincoln said as their meeting closed, never come to Washington without calling on me. Although he didn't agree with everything the president said or believed, he respected a man that treated him as an equal in the way that Lincoln did. Likewise, Douglas started having a profound impact on Lincoln. Instead of making excuses about pragmatic politics, Douglas's voice would continue to echo in the back of his mind to do the right thing always, even if it were difficult or not necessarily politically convenient. The next year, Douglas and Lincoln met again in Washington. Lincoln sought his advice on how to induce the slaves in the rebel states to come within the federal lines, ensuring their freedom. But Douglas had already laid out his personal mission for the war in a speech in January in New York City. No war, but an abolition war. No peace, but an abolition peace. Liberty for all, chains for none. As each day passed, Lincoln was beginning to agree more concretely with Douglas on this point. It wasn't enough to simply preserve the Union if the Union Lincoln wanted to preserve didn't live up to those founding ideals that Douglas now championed. Douglas moved Lincoln into this position through his friendship and sincerity. His logic was also sound. This meant that it was time for the Constitution to get the teeth it needed to reinforce its anti-slavery spirit. Lincoln carried the torch of Douglas's absolutism over the issue of slavery during the fight for the 13th Amendment. He was a powerful advocate for the amendment, and as it turned, this would be one of the final lasting consequences of Lincoln's legacy. It passed the House on January 31, 1865, and the President signed a joint resolution the next day, sending the amendment to the states for ratification. A little over a month later, he was inaugurated into his second term as President, and his friend, Frederick Douglass, listened with pride. Douglass attended the inaugural reception afterwards, and Lincoln reached out to him, asking what he thought of the speech. Quote, there is no man's opinion that I value more than yours. Mr. Lincoln, Douglas said, looking at the president with pride, that was a sacred effort. This was the last time the two men saw each other. The president was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth the following month. In the following years, Frederick Douglass continued to fight for the rights and liberties of black Americans and minority groups. He vocally supported the 14th Amendment, granting citizenship to former slaves, then he fought to secure the right to vote for all people, both men and women. 
This put him in the same circles as women's suffrage leader Susan B. Anthony. The two became lifelong friends. But when it was apparent that universal suffrage would fail, he supported the 15th Amendment without the inclusion of women under the pretext that he would help them ensure women's suffrage after its passage. Douglas's victory with the 13th Amendment seemed to lay the case to rest in Garrison's mind. He resigned from the American Anti-Slavery Society and called for it to be dissolved now that their mission was accomplished. Finally, in 1873, he and Douglas reunited and rekindled their friendship. They both publicly joined the fight for women's suffrage together in the late 1870s until Garrison's death in 1879. Frederick Douglass continued to fight the good fight for freedom for the next 16 years. In February 1895, Douglas spent hours in a women's suffrage meeting where he and Susan B. Anthony publicly made up. The two became distant after Douglas took the position of black male suffrage now, women's suffrage afterwards. Now, none of that mattered to either of them anymore. They were once again partners in freedom and friendship. He got back to his Washington home to his wife and was jubilant over the meeting. That was when, suddenly, he grabbed his chest and fell to his knees, then only to completely collapse. After what was believed to be either a massive heart attack or stroke, Frederick Douglass died on February 20th, 1895. Few people lived a life as full as Frederick Douglass had. Born into slavery, he was a living embodiment of the promise of America. He personally fulfilled the vision that the founders had for this nation. And because of him, that vision was able to spread to all people of all color. His journey and discovery of the true spirit of the Constitution is perhaps the most important advent to happen to the United States after the Constitution itself was written. It is because of Douglas that we have the 13th Amendment. Thomas Jefferson outlined the promise of America in 1776, but Frederick Douglass made good on that promise. Then, even up to the day he died, he never stopped fighting for that promise, advancing freedom and suffrage to all people, regardless of sex. Few people have ever deserved being called a champion of liberty more than he was. And nobody can truly understand the Constitution without understanding Frederick Douglass's role to preserve it. Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of the premiere of the second season of Profiles in Liberty. This entire season we are going to be going over uh, what I am dubbing the equalizers, people who worked to advance the promise of America uh, throughout their lives, uh, whether it be during the time frame of the founders or whether it be afterwards. These are all people who I think lived truly incredible lives, uh, and I am very excited to be able to introduce some of these people to you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode on Frederick Douglass. Next week, we are going to be going over uh, a man named William Still, who was the father of the Underground Railroad. Uh, throughout these next few weeks, I hope that you will join me in this journey uh, discovering these powerful advocates for liberty. And if you don't mind, please be sure to rate the show uh, wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, give us a little uh, rating, a review. Uh, it sure would help uh, spreading the message. And share it around. Uh, be sure to, to, to share it on social media. I am at Caleb Franz on Twitter, so please be sure to tag me if you would like whenever you're sharing it out. And let me know your thoughts. Until next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Caleb France for Profiles and Liberty.